Welcome back to another exciting episode of P.S. Spooky Shiz, also known as Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. All right. In a unanimous vote on the Facebook page, we are doing Kentucky murders today. So I will go through some of the stats and some of the stories and then end off with a really big story that's hit our kind of around our hometown of Crystal Rogers and Tommy Ballard. All right. With that being said, let's jump right into the stories. All right. We're going to go over to wisevoter.com where they show a little snippet of murder rates by state. All right. So the homicide rate is 10.3 per 100,000 people, which is ranked in the U.S. as number 14 in the U.S. I guess that's per capita of people. All right. And then the number of homicides is 464, which is ranked in the U.S. as number 24. So I would say if we're not going by people, we're just going by states, we are ranked 24. Which is surprising to me, but it tracks because everybody in Kentucky pretty much owns a gun. And uh, yeah, I mean, out of 50 states, I still feel like we're a little high at 24. I mean, I feel safe in where I live. <laughs> Uh, Louisville is pretty safe as well, but if you go to certain parts of Louisville, it's definitely more sketchy and more dangerous. We go over to discoverwalks.com, where they have an article, 10 Famous Murders That Happened in Kentucky. Posted by Faith on January 17th of this year. Kentucky FBI's report has recorded that almost 12,242 murders occurred in Kentucky just between 1980 and 2019 alone. As compared to other states, these murders are considered to be fewer. Therefore, Kentucky has few, very few murder cases, which some have been solved, and the victims have been submitted to severe punishment by the law, but others have been left unsolved. Most victims are given long-term sentences in prison or life sentences in prison as their punishment. These unlawful killings of victims really cause confusion and sadness to the nation, and most importantly to their family members, because the murders commit very painful killings to their victims, such as stabbing them, using firearms, poisoning, or burning them. Therefore, this article is going to explore more on the murder cases that happened in Kentucky. Number 1. Donald Harvey's The Angel of Death Donald was a former nurse aide who killed his patients by using arsenic and cyanide and he did this so that he could just end their suffering working while working in ohio and kentucky donald admitted that he killed more than three dozen hospital patients and 18 other patients while he was working at the veterans administration medical in cincinnati donald also killed his wife carl However, by poisoning her food with arsenic, he suspected that she was cheating on him. 
He proceeded to kill his wife's father, also by using arsenic. He also killed two of his neighbors, one by poisoning their drink with hepatitis serum, and other by using arsenic in their pie. He later died in 2017, after he was attacked and beaten by, to death by a fellow inmate. Number two, Cecil Van Hoos. On May 1929, in Paintsville, a small town in Kentucky, Cecil was playing with his friend Carl, and they found a metal scrap which they had agreed to sell for extra cash. They later argued, and Cecil hit Carl in the face with it. Carl got angry and went to get his father's gun, a 12-gauge shotgun, and shot his friend to get his revenge. Cecil died on the spot, and Carl was arraigned to court for a trial. Carl was sentenced to 15 years at a reform school, but was released on cash bail. Andrew was believed to have killed at least a total of three people. Jack Roerink, May Stringer, and Mamie Mercer. He killed Jack Rorick by breaking into his house and stabbing him multiple times with a kitchen knife. He also took off with some of Jack's properties, including his truck, which was found at his ex-wife's house. May Stringer was an 83-year-old woman who was stabbed by Abner. He later set her house on fire after committing the unlawful act in 1988. This made her family believe she had just perished in a house fire. Mamie was a victim of a strangulation. Abner invaded her home and strangled her, and later her body was found in her bed in 1983. This case remained unsolved for many years until Andrew was captured in 2010. He was sentenced for committing three murders. All right, number four, Robert Carl Foley. Robert Carl was found guilty of committing six murders among them being his brothers, who were reported to have gone missing by their mother on August 18, 1991, after they had gone to visit Foley. Rodney Vaughn and Lynn Vaughn were shot by their brother after they had an argument at his house. Their bodies were later found in a pool of water 200 yards down a hill off White Oak Road. Two years earlier, Foley shot Four people whom he thought of them had reported him to his parole officer. Jerry McMillan, Lillian Contino, Kimberly Bowersock, and Calvin Reynolds' bodies had been missing since 1989, and they were later found in a septic tank in Bald Rock. Robert was arrested and found guilty of the six murders and sentenced to death. Betty Gale Brown Betty's murder is one of the oldest cold murders in Kentucky. She disappeared on the night of October 1961. Since she never got home that fateful night when her mother Quincy was waiting for her. Brown was later found in her car, which was in Transylvania's old Morrison building. She had been strangled to death with her own bra without any of her things being taken or being raped. Her murder... Arnold, who might have killed her, confessed that he had no motive for killing her since he was just drunk. She was buried at the Bluegrass Memorial Gardens, and until today, Betty's case remains unsolved since no relative, friend, family, or witness have ever 
provided evidence of the murder of Betty. Number six, Elena Sanchez Hawkins. On January 8th, 1992, Elena Sanchez and her family woke up to carry out their daily routine. Her husband left for work and Elena was left to prepare her eldest son for school. Her husband called several, severally to check if his son had been picked up by the bus, but there was no answer. Later on, he called again, only for his son to answer the call and said, Mommy's bleeding. The police arrived at Elena's home in Kentucky, only to find her in the living room. Her throat was cut, her wrist bound, and she had been sexually harassed by her killer. Before her death, Elena had been reported that a man was looking at her strangely where she was working. Ernest Pines might have been her killer because she also performed another he also performed another killing in the same way he murdered Elena. John Roscoe Garland. On the fateful night of March 9, 1997, Jean Ferrier, Crystal Connutzer, and April Sexton went out for country music in Somerset. Jean, 26 years old, had a relationship with Roscoe and was currently dating Gary Roberts, whom she was pregnant. At the country music, the girls met Chris, who danced with Crystal and offered to drop the women. April was dropped off, and Chris later drove to Gary Roberts' driveway and honked, after which they drove to Jean's trailer. Later in the afternoon, the bodies of Crystal, Chris, and Jean were found in the bedroom of Jean's trailer. Jean was choked before she was shot by the murderer, and Chris and Crystal were also shot. Number 8. Sean Windsor Sean Windsor began being abusive to his first wife, Angela, whom she left, and married his second wife, Betty Jean, who was Angela's cousin. Betty Jean was also abused, and there was a vivid domestic violence order that ordered Sean to stay away from Betty Jean. On December 28, 2003, Windsor called Betty Jean and asked if he could see Corey, their son, and invited them for dinner, only for them to be killed at his home. It was reported that Windsor stabbed his son in the heart, and then he beat Betty with a barbell to death. He immediately disappeared after this incident, and it was through America's Most Wanted show that led to his capture. Sean was sentenced to death on the 26th of November, 2006, and he is currently on death row at the Kentucky State Penitentiary. Number 9, Jason Hendricks. Jason was to help in the setting up of a movie theater that doubles as a house of prayer on one early Sunday, but his life ended after he ignored a traffic stop by Maryland State and they shot him. Hmm. He had been investigated for his parents' and sister's murder, which he carried out because his parents had grounded him following an argument with them, and also they cut off Jason's cell phone and computer use. Jason mercilessly shot his parents, Kevin Hendricks and Sarah Hendricks, together with his sister Grace Hendricks in the head at least twice, and he used a pillow to cover up the gunshot since they were found on their faces when their bodies were discovered. Number 10, Roger Dale Epperson. Dale was a high-profile murderer in eastern Kentucky and was found guilty of stabbing Tammy D. Acker, 
a 23-year-old who was a student of the University of Kentucky. He also killed Bessie and Edwin Morris of Greyhawk by stabbing them to death during robberies. Benny Lee Hodge and Terry Bartley were also found guilty in the cases. Dale worked out a deal to convert his death sentence to life without parole, which was still pending in the federal court of his conviction and sentence. Attorneys agreed to set aside the death sentence because the court fight would have continued until he was 80 years old. Louisville, Kentucky. More than 30 years passed before the serial killer responsible for the rape and murders of three women in Kentucky and Indiana were identified. Using the investigative genealogy, Kentucky native Harry Greenwell has been named as the I-65 killer. Clothing, hair, DNA, and technology. How police identified the I-65 killer after 35 years. Also known as the Days Inn Killer, Greenwell's known victims were all clerks at motels along the Interstate 65 corridor. Officials believe he may be linked to other attacks and killings, given similar crimes took place in the late 1980s and early 1990s in Minnesota, Kentucky, and Illinois. Louisville native identified as I-65 Killer who killed at least three women from Kentucky and Indiana. Congress defined serial killings as a series of three or more killings by a person or persons that have common characteristics, with at least one committed within the United States. Over the years, Kentucky and Indiana communities have been haunted by several serial killers who collectively claim dozens of lives. All right, we already talked about Donald Harvey, the angel of death who killed his patients. Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer in the U.S., Years active, 1970 to 2005. He died in December of 2020. Dubbed the most prolific serial killer in the U.S. history, Little confessed to killing 93 people between 1970 and 2005, with at least one of his victims being from Kentucky. Little was arrested at a Louisville homeless shelter in 2012, where authorities had tracked him down after using DNA testing to determine he was involved in the murders of three women in the 1980s. Little was connected to the 1981 murder of 23-year-old Linda Sue Boards in Warren County, Kentucky, according to the Bowling Green Daily News. However, court records show the case didn't make it to trial because of administrative procedure. Of the 93 killings Little confessed to, nearly 60 have been confirmed by police. Most took place in Florida and Southern California. He also killed people in Tennessee, Texas, Ohio, Mississippi, Nevada, and Arkansas. He died in a California prison in 2020 at the age of 80. Bell Gunness, years active, the early 1900s died April 1908. Over the span of about five years, she killed at least 25 people, though some say the real number was at least 40. After mysterious fire at her home, local authorities concluded Gunness and her children had died in the blaze, but some believe she faked her death and fled to California, where she may have found more victims. Right? Herb Baumeister. Years active, 1980 to 1996 died July of 1996.
Baumeister was identified as a serial killer when investigators found thousands of human bone fragments buried in his Indiana property in 1996. He is believed to be responsible for the deaths of 16 teenage boys and men who he picked up from bars in Indianapolis, then strangled. Baumeister 49 was the wealthy owner of Save-A-Lot thrift stores. The property where many of the bodies were recovered was worth more than $2 million. About one week after the Ham Hamilton County Sheriff's Department began the investigation the on the discovery of the bones, Baumeister drove to Canada where he shot and killed himself. Two years after his death, police concluded he also had killed nine other young men whose partially nude bodies were found dumped into shallow streams along Interstate 70 across central Indiana and western Ohio during the 1980s. Larry Eiler, the highway killer, years active, 1970s to the 1980s, died in 1994. Dubbed the highway killer, Eiler was linked to the deaths of 23 young men in the late 1970s and early 1980s, mostly in Illinois and Indiana. His general pattern was to pick up men who were hitchhiking or something in gay bars, giving them alcohol and slip them a strong sedative so they would lose consciousness. He would then take them to a secluded spot and viciously kill them, sometimes mutilating or dismembering his victims. In 1986, he was sentenced to death for, more, for one of those murders in Illinois, and was also sentenced to 60 years for an Indiana murder. But after his death in 1994, because of complications related to AIDS, his attorney handed over a list of 17 men Eiler claimed he had killed, and the names of four other allegedly killed in an unnamed accomplice. The I-70 killer, years active 92 and 93. An unknown serial killer dubbed the I-70 killer is believed to have started killing in April of 1992 when the manager of a shoe store in Indianapolis that was easily accessible from I-70 was shot to death. Over the next four weeks, five more people in three states were slain in stores and communities along that highway. After the series of slayings, there was a pause. In 1993, a second series of shootings began that bore a marked similarity to the I-70 series. These, however, were committed in Texas, but with easy access to Interstate 35 and 45. The cases remain unsolved. Leslie Mad Dog Irving. He was active from 1954 to 1955. He died in 1983. David Most. Years active, 1981 to 2003. He died in January 2006. Most murdered four teenage boys and was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for a fifth over the course of nearly three decades. In 2003, he killed three Hammond, Indiana teenagers that were 13, 16, and 19. Their bodies were found wrapped in plastic bags and entombed in a freshly poured concrete in the basement where he lived. Previously, he served time for the 1981 murder of a 15-year-old Illinois boy for the involuntary manslaughter in the death of a 13-year-old boy while serving in the U.S. Army. Most, 51, died at a hospital after being found hanged from a braided bedsheet inside the Lake County jail cell.
All right, we go over to Uncovered.com, where they have a article on Kentucky cold cases. Kentucky murders. The websites of various law enforcement agencies provide reports and data on a number of murders in Kentucky by year. Year after year, the Federal Bureau of Investigation publishes a uniform crime report detailing the sort of crimes committed crime level, and location of each crime that is committed in every state. In addition to the FBI's archived reports, Project Cold Case has a page on their website sharing the number of homicides in each state from the 1980s to 2019, as well as having a public database of almost 25,000 unsolved murders. According to Project Cold Case, there were roughly 12,242 murders in Kentucky alone between 1980 and 2019. About 92 or 9,220 of these murders have been resolved over the years, and sadly, there are still around 3,022 murder cases in Kentucky that remain unsolved to this day. A few examples of the numerous unsolved murders in northern Kentucky include the 1974 murder of Elvin Wilkerson, the 1978 murder of Raymond Scott McKenzie, and the 1994 murder of Evelyn Fleck, the 1976 abduction and murder of Carol Sue Claver, and the 2011 double murder of William and Peggy Stevenson, along with others that remain unsolved. Also included in the list of cold cases on various law enforcement and investigating agencies' websites are some of many unsolved Central Kentucky murders, which include the 1983 murder of Christine Castiglione, and 1975 murder of Michael Painter, the 1982 murder of Kimberly Luisel, the 1992 murder of Elena Sanchez-Hawkins, and the 1995 murder of Jane Ellswick, among many others. Although Franklin County boasts a population of well over 51,000 inhabitants, and Frankfurt's popu population is over 27,000, there currently is no database or website listing any murders in Franklin County, Kentucky, or murders in Frankfurt, Kentucky. The lack of easily available information regarding murders in both Frankfort, Kentucky and Franklin County, Kentucky is exactly the pro problem that we are trying to help resolve at Uncovered. Unsolved Kentucky Murders According to Project Cold Case's data, there are currently roughly 3,022 unsolved murders in Kentucky as of the site's last update. Many local, county, and state law enforcement agencies have shared information about the many unsolved murders in Kentucky, although there is no database that can, exists in Kentucky containing a comprehensive list. Some of the many unsolved murders in northern Kentucky listed on the website of various law enforcement agencies include <sighs> doo -doo -doo, the 1974 murder of Elvin Wilkerson, the 1978 murder of Raymond Scott McKenzie, the 1994 murder of Evelyn Fleck, the 1976 abduction and murder of Carol Sue Claber, the 2011 double murder of William and Peggy Stevenson, along with others that remain unsolved. 
In addition, other Kentucky cold cases, which are included on these websites and databases, are many unsolved murders in eastern Kentucky. These include the 1983 murder of Debbie Eccles, the 2008 murder of Marion Istep, the 2003 murder of Diane Keaton, and the 2000 murder of Kevin Adkins, and the 1982 murder of Donnie Ray Sullivan, among countless others. Finally, as mentioned previously, despite its population of over 27,000 residents, Frankfort, Kentucky does not currently have an easily available list of database that houses any cold cases for its unsolved murders. Do any specific names or cases come to mind when you think about famous Kentucky murders? You may not have a name that immediately comes to mind because most of the names that can be found listed on several lists of murders in Kentucky found on various investigating and law enforcement agencies' websites may not sound familiar. Nevertheless, a few of the names on listed within the list of all murders in Kentucky, list of Kentucky murders, or within list of notorious Kentucky criminals, on the other hand, have become well known, especially in Kentucky. A couple of the most infamous Kentucky murders, which remain unsolved, include the 1961 murder of Betty Gail Brown and the 1992 murder of Elena Sanchez Hawkins, among others. According to the Uniform Crime Report, Issued by the FBI in 2019, the violent crime rate in Kentucky was roughly 217.1 per 10,000 inhabitants. In total, in 2019 alone, approximately 217 out of every 1,000 residents of Kentucky were impacted directly by violent crime in some way, including murder, sexual assault, robbery, or assault. According to the same 2019 published report, the homicide rate in Kentucky was about 4.9 per 1,000 inhabitants. In summary, this means that almost 5 out of every 100,000 inhabitants of Kentucky were murdered in 2019 alone. Wow. Alright, Frankfort, Kentucky's capital. Frankfort, which is Kentucky's capital, has a population of just 27,000 as of 2021. According to several sources, the violent crime rate in Frankfort, Kentucky in 2018 was roughly 256.65 per 100,000 residents. More specifically, the murder rate in Frankfort, Kentucky in 2018 was approximately 10.84 per 100,000 residents. Although we do not yet know how many murders in Frankfort, Kentucky in 2021 or how many murders in Kentucky in 2021, we do know that based on the data within archived crime statistic reports, the homicide rates for both Kentucky for the city of Frankfort as well as Kentucky as a whole appears to be increasing annually at a slow rate. Franklin County Murders Currently, the population of Franklin County, Kentucky is only 51,000 people, which is significantly lower than most other big cities in the state. Although we do not definitively know how many Franklin County murders have been committed in the past few years, we can refer to archived uniform crime reports released by the FBI to try and estimate the general trend of homicides in Franklin County, Kentucky. Based on these uniform crime reports, there were two murders in Franklin County in 2016, none in 2017, 
one in 2018, and one in 2019. Based on these reports, we can determine that the number of murders com committed in Franklin County appears to have remained stable throughout the past few years. In most homicides, investigators are usually able to collect enough Franklin County murder evidence to charge their main suspect and take them to Franklin County murder trials. The sort of evidence that is most commonly included in Franklin County homicide trials generally relies entirely on the nature and characteristics of the crime itself. Examples of the most commonly used evidence in murder trials include DNA evidence such as blood, saliva, or skin cells, and other types of evidence such as fingerprints, witness statements, and cell phone pings. Arguably, the most common evidence in a murder trial is Franklin County's murder crime scene photos. These images are displayed during the trial in order to show the judge and jury the prosecutor's view on the reasons why the crime may have been committed and how the crime was committed, showing the crime scene, the surrounding environment, and any evidence located in the general area. Frankfort, Kentucky Murders On account of its small size and population, Franklin or Frankfort, Kentucky murders are seemingly much less common than those in many other Kentucky cities. A large majority of the recent and decades-old murders in Frankfort, Kentucky have been solved or have seen some form of revolution resolution. As expected, the investigators continue to use all available resources to investigate the remaining unsolved murders in Kentucky. Unsurprisingly, Frankfurt murders discussion will continue to remain the focus on various social media sites such as WebSleuths, Reddit, and Facebook. These social media platforms host speculative conversations and inform information sharing the most common conversations are based around Frankfurt murder pictures, Frankfurt, Frankfurt murder crime scene photos, and even Frankfurt, Kentucky murders autopsy photos. The police have never revealed these types of photos to the public, even after the case is resolved. In recent years, the revolutionary advancement of DNA technology has solved hundreds, even thousands of unsolved cold cases, and Kentucky, of course, is no exception. One of the cold cases in which Frankfurt murders DNA, as well as the DNA collected from other crime scenes across Kentucky, was used to solve or at least bring new information to unsolved cases. In the 1995 murder of Dever Wright, among others, mainly leading to the identification of Jane and John Doe's. Kentucky Serial Killers Throughout history, there have been many more Kentucky killers than you may expect. The most famous Kentucky serial killers may be easily identified on any top 10. The following are some of the most well-known Kentucky serial killers, who are most commonly found on these lists. Donald Harvey, also known as the Angel of Death, who claimed to have killed 89 people. Through officials' estimate, he has killed between 27 and 57 individuals. These lists may also include... Michael Andrew Abner, who is believed to kill at least three individuals, as well as the most prolific serial killer of all time, Samuel Little, who claimed to have killed at least 93 women, including two women in Kentucky. Crimes in Kentucky? If you're curious about the data and statistics involved in the crimes in Kentucky, various law enforcement and investigate, investigating agencies issue annual reports which show in detail the type of crime in the area which can be found on their corresponding websites. 
The Federal Bureau of Investigation also releases a uniform crime report every year detailing crimes, the data and statistics behind crimes, and the general area where various crimes are committed in almost every county and city within each state, including Kentucky. Despite law enforcement's best efforts, the number of Kentucky homicides and true crime stories in Kentucky seems like it is endless. According to the project Cold Case, between 1980 and 2019, approximately 12,242 murders took place in Kentucky. Over the years, approximately 9,220 of these murders have been solved, although Kentucky still has approximately 3,022 unsolved murders. The Kentucky's multiple investigative and law enforcement agencies will never abandon their mission to solve all of Kentucky's true crimes, no matter how many resources it acquires. I have a feeling we're going to hear about Samuel Little several times. We go over to SerialKillerShop.com. That's a weird name. But uh, it's got an article that says, Here are the four worst serial killers from Kentucky. Serial killers in Kentucky are very rare, yet there are frequent cases that can be documented of serial killers from or outside the state committing murders in the state. Kentucky's serial killers are rare, leading to the lowest record for most murders by a serial killer in the state, but frequent. Serial killers in Kentucky are rare, but some famous serial killers such as the Railroad Killer and the Angel of Death came through Kentucky to commit their crimes. Edward Edwards the Louisville man was sentenced to death after he admittedly killing his 25-year-old foster son in 1996 for $250,000 in life insurance. He told the AP in a prison interview that last year or last year that he confessed to killing Danny Boy Edwards outside Burton, east of Cleveland, because he wanted the death penalty. Edwards had already been serving life sentence for other crimes. He had pleaded guilty to killing Bill Lavaco, 21, of Doylestown, and Judith Straub, 18, of Sterling, in 1977. They were shot in the neck at close range. In Wisconsin, he admitted to killing 19-year-old sweethearts Tim Hack and Kelly Drew, who disappeared from a wedding reception in Jefferson County in, 18, er, in August of 1980. Their bodies were found weeks later in the woods. Investigation into their death languished until 2007, when the state analytics developed a DNA profile from semen found on Drew's pants. Investigators gathered DNA from more than 75 potential suspects in hopes of a match. One of Edward's children saw the story about the murders in 2009 and called authorities to say Edwards might have been the killer. The child remembered starting school in Watertown in 1980, but then abruptly leaving Wisconsin, and said Edwards was working at the reception hall where Hack and Drew were last seen. The child remembered Edwards saying the bodies would turn up in a field. Detectives traveled to Louisville, got DNA from Edwards, and matched it to the profile. They arrested him in 2009. Born in Akron in 1933, Edwards wrote in his 1972 autobiography, Metamorphosis, of a criminal, that he spent his early years being beaten by nuns in an orphanage. When a nun asked him what he wanted to be, he told her, Sister, I'm going to be a crook, and I'm going to be a good one. 
According to his book, he escaped from jail in Akron in 1955 by pushing past a guard and fled across the country, holding up gas stations for money. He never wore a mask because he wanted to be famous. All right, we go over to Boone County Sheriff, where they have a thing about cold case homicides. Date of death or missing? Gerald, or August 15, 1973. Gerald A. Johnson, 32, was found bound, shot, and tied to an anchor in the Ohio River near Petersburg, Kentucky. Johnson had connections to organized crime and other murders in Cleveland, Ohio. December 3, 1974. Edward Nichols, 21, was last seen hunting with a friend on the farm in Boone County, near the community of Duckhead. The farm is located in the southern part of the county near Gatlin County. Nichols did not return to the vehicle at the end of the day. Nichols' body has not been found. June 5, 1976, Carol Sue Claver, 16, found brutally murdered in a roadside ditch in Chambers Road. Solved March 2023. October 14, 1979, Leslie Sparrow, 35, was found dead in the trunk of her car at a hotel in Richmond, Kentucky. Leslie worked at Anaconda Industries in Louisville, Kentucky, and was known to travel. Miss Sparrow had been shot several times and sustained blunt force trauma. June 2, 1982, Joseph Singleton, 42, was found shot to death in his Walton, Kentucky home. Or April 1990, David L. Snyder, Jr., 30, was found by a pedestrian walking the wooded area on Interstate 275 near Hebron, Kentucky. The remains were found on October 7, 1999. David Snyder was last seen at work in April of 1990. The medical examiner was able to determine the approximate date of death by a part of the scalp that remained on a mature tree seedling at the time of the death. Snyder had been an inmate in Ohio prior to his death. It is believed that he assisted two escapees close to the time of his disappearance. May 22, 1998, Roger Bowling, 35, was in his home in Petersburg, Kentucky, when two unknown subjects entered his residence and shot Bowling during the course of a robbery. December 15, 2000, Barry Lynn Doyle, 43, was found dead in the garage of her residence on Travis Court, in Walton, Kentucky. Barry had been beaten and struggle a struggle took place in several rooms throughout the house. January 6, 2010, Brian Jones, 29, was found on Interstate 275 near Petersburg, Kentucky. Jones had a fatal gunshot wound and was unclothed. Jones was last seen alive in Cincinnati, Ohio, May 29, 2011. William and Peggy Stevenson were found murdered inside their home, located in Florence, Kentucky. Florence, y'all. A family member discovered their bodies after William, a.k.a. Bill, did not show up for the Sunday service at the Truckers Chapel where the services held at Union Baptist Church. Bill Stevenson ran the Truckers Chapel at the Travel America Truck Stop in Florence for many years. Bill and Peggy Stevenson were both 74 years old at the time of their death. January 6, 2013. Terry Hand, 41, was last seen in Walton, Kentucky on January 6, 2013. Terry had been missing and presumed dead that day. Hand's vehicle 
was located at his residence, and there was no signs of struggle. However, foul play may have led to his disappearance. And lastly on this list, August 26, 2017, Alan Williams, 48, was found on North Bend Road in Hebron, Kentucky. It was apparent that Alan was riding a bicycle and struck by a vehicle, causing his death. The driver who hit Alan Williams fled the scene. Here's a little bit more insight into the Betty Gale Brown story. Alright, so this comes from law.uky.edu. So, the College of Law at UK, the Rosenberg. Alright. Central Kentucky's Most Famous Cold Case by Whitney Hill. This was written in 2017. On October 26, 1961, the lifeless body of 19-year-old Betty Gale Brown was discovered in front of the old Morrison building on Transylvania's university's campus. A new University Press of Kentucky book, Who Killed Betty Brown? Murder, Mistrial, and Mystery by Robert G. Lawson, Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky, is the first book to examine Brown's murder, investigation, and trial one of Kentucky's most legendary cold cases. Brown was found at 3 a.m., strangled with her own bra in the front seat of her parked car. No witnesses or suspects could immediately be found, but police would go on to take testimonies, administer polygraph tests, and log the fingerprints of hundreds of students and persons of interest without ever finding motive for Brown's murder. The case grew cold until 1965 when an alcoholic drifter by the name of Alex Arnold Jr. confessed to killing Brown while visiting Lexington. Arnold believed so strongly that he was the culprit that he stated he was 99% sure that he had committed the murder. Yet Arnold would never go on to serve time for the young woman's murder. Though the Brown case went to trial over 50 years ago, who Killed Betty Brown by Lawson is the first book-length investigation into the murder and subsequent trial. Lawson served as one of the court-appointed lawyers who personally defended Arnold and brings his intimate, first-hand knowledge of the case to bear. He supplements his knowledge of the events with courtroom testimonies, police reports, and new accounts to construct a chronological account of Brown's famously unsolved murder and the trial of Arnold. Lawson offers as a complete as an account as possible on a unique murder and bizarre trial that engrossed Kentuckians across the state. He also demonstrates how complex the law can be and how thoroughly lawyers, attorneys, and police are willing to dig to get to the truth of a matter, even for a man who confessed to a brutal murder. Despite his confession, Arnold was advised to enter a plea of not guilty until sufficient evidence could prove otherwise. Bystanders packed the courtroom daily, eagerly waiting a guilty sentence, to no avail. Witnesses were unavailable to produce concrete evidence placing Arnold at the scene, and Arnold's own unreliable memory due to his alcoholism left the answers to a question about the night of the homicide confused and inconsistent. Ultimately, with no hard proof, the case was thrown out and Arnold was never retried. 
In the years to come, new evidence and leads would surface only to grow cold again, leaving Brown's case unsolved. Lawson lays out the facts in chronological order and presents only the information that the police knew at any given time, building suspense. This perspective allows readers to draw their own conclusions as to the story unfolds, offering the opportunity to explore many possibilities regarding the murder. He includes photographs taken at the scene of the crime, as well as a diagram of Transylvania's campus. By doing so, Lawson puts the reader in the role of the detective, heightening the intensity and demonstrating the pressure police officials were under to solve the crime. Lawson's personal recollections about the events of Brown's case evoke the frustration and profound sadness at the loss of such a young woman. Thoroughly, though, carefully recreation of the murder, subsequent investigations, and criminal trial, Lawson places the reader front and center to the events that play out from 1961 to 1966. Police have refused to give up on the case, despite the large passage of time, and new evidence continues to come to light periodically, most recent as 2010. None of these leads have ever panned out. But as long as Brown's case is open, police will continue to look for her killer. Robert G. Lawson has been a law professor for 50 years at UK, where he served twice as a dean of College of Law. He is the author of the Kentucky Evidence Law Handbook. So that was pretty cool how someone was there for the action and kind of leading us through the steps, you know. So that was pretty cool. It's sad that it's still a cold case, but I digress. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I go over to the FBI website where they actually have a video of Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer, confessing to a serial killing in Covington, Kentucky in 1984. Um, I can read the video transcript for you um, as it pertains to Kentucky. And then I'm not going to go through all of his videos because he did kill across the United States, so. I'm just going to cover the one from Kentucky. All right. Samuel Little Confession, Covington, Kentucky, 1984. Samuel Little, 79, has confessed to 93 murders. He's currently in prison in Texas. Law enforcement has confirmed more than half of his confessions, but some remain unmatched. In a recent interview, Little recalled details of a victim in Covington, Kentucky, Right, so the video transcript is as follows. James Holland, Texas Ranger. Hey, so tell me about Northern Kentucky, the girl that you met in Columbus. So you met this girl, I guess you're at a strip bar downtown Columbus, Sam Little. I want, I went out, I went on out of the car 
and this white girl comes out of nowhere behind the building. You know, I mean, my trunk opened. She walks over to me and says, Come on, y'all. Can you take me to Miami? Holland, describe this girl to me. Is she white, black? What does she look like? Little, she's white, blonde hair, dishwater, dishwater blonde, they call it, and short. Holland, short like shoulder length or little? No, no, ear. It was a little over ear length. Holland, like a bob? Little, yeah, like a bob. How tall do you think she was? She was about 5'7", said Little. Holland, and how much do you think she weighed? Little, she weighed about 130. Holland, how old do you think she was? Little, she was around 25. Holland, you mentioned that before, that uh, you said she had kind of like this hippie aura to her. Little, yeah. She did give you a hippie feeling. I think she was some kind of hippie, yeah. Holland, so you go to Cincinnati, you mess around on Vine Street, and then eventually you guys both get in your car and you cross over the bridge into Kentucky. Tell me about going into Kentucky. Little. We got to Covington, and then we continued through Covington, and there was a park that they were having a festival in, and she heard the music and stuff off the band in there, and by her being a hippie type, she's like, whoa. She wanted to get to that, but the police came over and peeked in the car. He really wanted me to move out there. So we, instead of going in there, I took the other way, winding, winding around. They got hills out in Kentucky, and the road winds around the hills. I've seen a little short road going up the hill, and up top there was a uh, vegetation. There was no houses or nothing, so I pulled up in there and concealed the car in that little vegetation up there on the top of the hill. Holland, so tell me about this. This road that goes up the hill, what kind of road is it? Little. It was, it was like a dirt road. It was like dirt. The grass was growing in the middle between two tracks. When I left her up in there, and in that little road up there on the side of the road, she was partially concealed by the vegetation. I left her there. Alright, so that was a little clip of the video you can find on the FBI's website on Samuel Little. And, I mean, he's got confessions from Las Vegas, Miami, New Orleans, Little Rock, um, to name a few. So, um, that's just the part about Covington, Kentucky, which is a little south of Cincinnati. Alright, we're going over to WKDQ.com, which looks like a radio station, and they have an article about the most notorious serial killer from Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. It was posted in 2022 by Travis Sams. With the success of Dahmer, Mindhunter, and other various true crime shows, the country has become captivated with true crime, particularly serial killers. When it comes to serial killers, the United States has no shortage of them. In fact, according to Insider, the sad truth is that the United States has, more, has had more serial killers than any other country. 
That being said, each state is connected to a serial killer in some way. Insider took a look at the most notorious serial killers in each state. Let's take a look at which ones were named the most notorious in Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. For those of you that are not from the United States, Kentucky is bordered by Illinois and Indiana to the north. So that's why a lot of times the Indiana murders are grouped in with the Kentucky murders. Most notorious serial killer in Illinois. This one we've covered before, but that was John Wayne Gacy. Gacy gives me the creeps, and we could do an entire episode on him. But the insider says, Dubbed the serial killer clown, Gacy killed 33 boys and young men in the 70s. Since he worked as a clown performer for children's parties, he would often kill his victims while wearing his clown costume that he called Pogo the Clown. Gacy would sexually assault the boys, strangle them with rope, and then bury their bodies under his house. He was found guilty on all 33 counts and was put to death in 1994. Ugh. Makes me think his uh, alter ego was Pogo the Clown. That's scary. Even if you look up his picture on Google or something, it's creepy. Like, it's like, oh, nope, didn't want to see that. Because <laughs> he's dressed as a clown. All right. Most notorious serial killer in Indiana? Not all serial killers have gotten the attention of Dahmer or Gacy. Some of them are lesser known. Case in point, Indiana's most notorious serial killer, Herbert Baumeister, also known as the I-70 Strangler. According to Insider, Herbert Baumeister led a double life. He lived on a farm in Indiana with his wife of 25 years and had three children. What his wife didn't know was that Herb also cruised gay bars at night and picked up young men. Eventually, police started showing up at Baumeister's home asking questions about missing boys. They later found 11 bodies just 50 feet from his home. As the cops circled in on him, he panicked and died by suicide without ever facing trial. Most notorious serial killer in Kentucky? Finally, insider named Donald Harvey, or the Angel of Death, as the most notorious serial killer in Kentucky. His story, much like any other serial killer, is very disturbing. Alright, I know that we read a thing about him poisoning patients, but I want to read what the insider has to say about Donald Harvey. Donald Harvey is better known as the Angel of Death after he confessed to 57 murders. In the 1980s, Harvey was a nurse's aide working at hospitals in Kentucky and Ohio. He killed dozens of patients using cyanide, rat poison, and arsenic, according to WXIX. Bottom line was Donald Harvey liked to kill. William Whalen, Harvey's former attorney, wrote in a book, Harvey was convicted of 37 murders and sentenced to multiple life sentences. In 2017, he was beaten to death in prison. All right, we go over to Wild Blue Press, where they're talking about a moot or a book. Um, the title of it is True Crime Author Kevin Sullivan Digs Up 10 Tales of murder in Kentucky Bloodbath. All right, so it's called Kentucky Bloodbath. All right, 
10 Bizarre Tales of Murder from the Bluegrass State. Readers who find themselves turning the pages of this new work from the author uh, Kevin Sullivan is, let's see, are in for a real excursion into the weird and bizarre. From a medieval-esque murder in a small-town museum to the jilted boyfriend who decided that his former girlfriend needed to die on her 21st birthday. And then there's the demented son who returns home to live with his mother and stepfather. And one night in their beautiful mansion sitting atop a high bluff overlooking the Ohio River slaughters them. Each case will keep you on the edge of your seat. Alright, it had some accolades about the author and about reviews. Um, but this is from the author. I began As I began my research into past Kentucky killers and their victims, I was well aware there were a good number of unusual homicides from the Bluegrass State. As I'd read about them over the years in newspaper accounts, heard the strange tales from relatives and friends, or watched the occasional newscasts on TV. But these sources were never in-depth studies of the cases in question, and worse still, very often erroneous information came forth. And it wasn't until I began the research using the original case files that I'd find out what really happened. And it would be in the months of discovery that an accurate picture of each individual tragedy would rise and take shape from seemingly innumerable police reports and interviews of those involved. Indeed, many of those stories I've unearthed would have been lost forever had I not sought them out from the dusty archives and storage facilities scattered throughout the state. Stories that would ultimately be destined for obscurity and eventual disposal after decades dragged on. Recently, one radio interviewer contemplating their bizarre aspects quite rightly stated how all of these Kentucky murders resembled, resembled something out of the Twilight Zone. And I quickly had to agree with his assessment that the nature of these cases, and frank, frankly, it was what I was looking for in my quest, to uncover the true crime in Kentucky. From Death by Sword, Gowan liked rough sex, and it was important for him, at least during intercourse, to pretend he was someone else, a doctor, a soldier, someone with authority. And sometimes he would pretend to R-word her while holding an imaginary knife to her throat. His girlfriend also mentioned his personality would change from good to bad very quickly, one minute, he would be very kind and considerate person. The next minute, he would be talking about killing somebody or cutting someone's head off. From Blood in the Moonlight, as Bauer led the officer to the side door where they entered the house through the kitchen, Kendrick asked if he knew who'd done this, and Bauer said no. Just before stepping inside the home, Kendrick radioed the emergency medical services unit, telling them to continue on to this address, Code 3 and that homicide units would be sent as well. Having notified dispatch, Kendrick then drew his weapon and entered a nightmare. Those were some excerpts from those chapters. Um, pretty cool. And again, this was written and researched by Kevin Sullivan. All right. So this comes from like CBC Chronicles of Boone County, Kentucky. Uh, the Kiger Murders of 1943 by Bridget Stryker. In Boone County, Kentucky, the Kiger family is most well known for the events that took place on August 17, 1943 at Rosegate Farm, 
nearly 70 years and several news articles, a book, and two plays later, speculation and controversy still swirl around the night Carl Kiger and his six-year-old son Jerry died. The center of that notorious night was Carl's 15-year-old daughter, Joan, who was later placed on trial for shooting deaths of both Carl and Jerry. On that fateful Tuesday night, Carl and his wife, Jeannie, along with their two youngest children, Joan and Jerry, were asleep in their beds when someone shot and killed both Carl and Jerry, wounding Jenny in the hip. Joan, unharmed, drove the family car to the neighbors to get help. When Boone County Sheriff Jake Williams arrived on the scene, the house was full of both Kenton and Grant County officials. According to the officials at the scene, the house was locked up tight with no evidence of intruders. Carl Kiger was considered a suspicious man and kept three pistols in the house, two downstairs in his study and one in his upstairs bedroom under his pillow. He insisted all the doors and windows of Rosegate were kept shut and locked at night, even in the heat of the summer. Why was Carl Kiger so paranoid about his family's safety? No one knows for certain. However, rumors have alluded to Kiger's mob connections as vice mayor of Covington. After the deaths, $1,440 in cash was found in the house, speculated to be slot machine payoff money. On December 14, 1943, the Boone County Grand Jury indicted both John or Joan and Jeannie Kiger for the willful murder of Carl and Jerry Kiger. The case was then brought to trial in Burlington Courthouse on December 16, 1943. Joan, now 16, was tried as an adult for the death of little Jerry, her mother to stand trial later. Although a motive was still debated, Prosecuting attorney Vincent sought the death penalty. Joan was defended by prominent attorney Sawyer A. Smith. Judge Ward Jager presided over the five-day trial. During the trial, Joan's tendencies towards night terrors, very intense and seemingly real nightmares, was brought to light. Apparently, Joan inherited the affliction from her father. The theory was that Joan thought she heard gunshots in the house and was defending against an intruder. Experts were brought in to testify whether or not gunshots would have awoken Joan from a dream state. Joan testified that she fired at shadowy figures that she thought were shooting at her. It was shown that the gun that was used to kill Jerry, Joan gave to Jenny before leaving the house. Schiffer states, The defense hinged on what the jury would buy into Smith's defense, that Joan was not in her right mind when she did the shooting, and therefore not responsible. After a four-hour deliberation, the jury found no proven motives for the murder of Jerry Kiger. The 12 Boone County men found Joan Kiger not guilty. As a result of the not guilty verdict, the prosecution dropped all charges against Joan and her mother. Without the first conviction, there was no motivation to try other cases. In 1943, it was hard to conceive that a nice girl would kill her family. Carl Kiger's alleged political connections led to speculation that the mob killed Kiger and set Joan up as a scapegoat for the murders. In the years that followed the trial, the community has remained divided in Joan's role in her father and brother's death. 
fellow fellow students have remained adamant that John or Joan would not have knowingly killed her family. Others firmly believe that Joan was not as innocent as she seemed, and she got away with murder. In Boone County, the murders and subsequent trial remains one of the most discussed single events in Boone County history. Regardless of the motives or guilty parties, one fact remains constant. The Kiger family was destroyed that night in August of 1943. Joan Marie Kiger changed her name to Marie Kyler and graduated from the University of Louisville with a degree in education. According to Thomas Schiffer, 2012, she was employed by Jefferson County Public School System, where she was a guidance counselor. Her death certificate states that Marie Kyler died of cirrhosis of the liver in April of 1991 at the age of 64, and she donated her body to the University of Louisville. Side note, built in the 19th century, Rosegate Farm, with its 20 acres, was located in the little town of Devon, along Dixie Highway, just south of Florence, Kentucky. The large two-story house was demolished in 2005. All right, this comes from another news article from WJHL.com. And it's about 25 years after gruesome murders, community remembers the Lilalid, Lilalid, Lilalid. I don't know. I apologize to anybody that knew this family, and I can't say their name right. But I'll just call it the Lilalid family. By Ashley Sharp. It was written last year. Green County, Tennessee, which borders Kentucky on the south. On April 6, 1997, exactly 25 years ago to the day, a horrific murder case rocked Green County, making headlines across the globe. Six young people from Pikeville, Kentucky, aged 14 to 20, happened across paths with the Lilith family of four. All were stopped at a rest area on I. 81 in Baileyton. The Lilids on their way home to Knoxville from a religious conference in Johnson City. Vidar Lilid, the father, approached the group of six as they sat at picnic tables at the rest stop, not knowing the horror that would lie ahead. As a practicing Jehovah's Witness, he shared his faith with the young people he encountered. It would be the final time he shared his religion. Vidar, his wife, Delphina, and their two young children, Tabitha, six, and Peter, two, were kidnapped at gunpoint. They were taken in their family vehicle to rural Payne Hollow Lane in Baileyton and shot by their six young captors. All four were left lying in the ditch on the side of the road. Only Peter, age two, would survive, though he was seriously injured. The six convicted of the crimes are Jason Bryant, 14 at the time, Karen Howell, 17, Crystal Sturgill, 18, and Natasha Cornett, 18, Edward Mullins, 19, and Joseph Risner, 20. They were allegedly embarking on a cross-country crime spree when they encountered the Lilids, and they were in need of a better vehicle. The six would flee to Mexico in the Lilids' van following the killings, where they would be captured at the U.S.-Mexico border just two days later and taken into custody. All were brought back to Greene County, where they would be tried and convicted of the murders 
all as adults. Stopping to remember 25 years later, a small gathering of community members and law enforcement officials met on Ping Hollow Lane, Wednesday, the road where the Lilid family was shot and left for dead. The group hoped to honor the family and pay their respects at the site of the crime exactly 25 years later. Go with us, Lord. Help us. Help the families. Frank Waddell prayed at Wednesday's ceremony. Waddell and his partner Jeff Mori- Morgan were the first two Greene County Sheriff's Department patrolmen on the scene on April 6, 1997. He said they, were, they responded to a disturbance call. They thought it would be drunks shooting guns on Payne Hollow. What he and Morgan found has never left his mind. I can still see them lying there. It never leaves you. It's just something you've got to deal with, said Waddell, looking at the ditch where he found the Lowlids. Waddell says Morgan held Peter, still alive, until EMS arrived. I didn't see little Peter. Peter was laying in the ditch, said Waddell. The, la- the Lowlids did nobody harm, and they, there they laid, in the ditch. I don't see how it could get any worse. Also at the memorial, a gathering of just over a dozen community members who came to pay their respects. Among them, Frida Morlock, who has a family connection to the investigation. With my brother being sheriff at the time, what they went through and everything, we just wanted to come down here and be at this, said Morlock. A lifelong resident of Greene County, she said the shock of these crimes remain today. You never get over it. It just always sticks with you said Morlock. It's just something you don't understand and probably never will. Greene County local James Stewart hosted Wednesday's memorial for the Lilids. He recently started a podcast series looking at the crime called The Devil Came Knocking. This case has kind of took a life of its own. I feel personally involved now. I've interviewed so many people. I thought it would give the community some closure and the family some closure, said Stewart. Stewart says he is in regular contact with the friends of the Lilads. At Wednesday's service, he read a letter of gratitude penned by a close family friend thanking the community for stopping to remember. They're still cared about here, Stewart said. Part of their faith was to help people, and that's what the family truly believed. It stuck with me all these years. Tim Floyd is a 30-plus year veteran of Greene County EMS. I could have been anywhere. It just happened to be here, said Floyd. He recalls the randomness of the attack. Kids from Kentucky, a family from Knoxville, faithfully meeting at the I-81 rest stop. It was a lot more than we were expecting, said Floyd. He was the first of two paramedics on the scene in 1997. Pretty much immediately, we could tell the mom and dad were already deceased, but the little girl, little boy Peter, they were still alive. He was actually whimpering, not crying, but whimpering. She wasn't, but she was still alive. Cloyd and his colleague rushed Tabitha and Peter to the hospital by ambulance with gunshot wounds. Peter would have been the only member of his family to survive the attack. Tabitha died after being flown to a hospital in Knoxville. It stuck with me all this years, it has. It's gotten easier to deal with through the years, said Cloyd. It is trauma, Cloyd says, he could not process at first. So traumatic, he even considered quitting his job the day following the murders and never being a paramedic again. 
It didn't really hit me hard until the day they caught them. Seeing that on the news at 11 o'clock, I broke down and it wasn't pretty, said Cloyd. Cloyd stuck with his profession as a first responder. This is a case that has defined his career. This was definitely the worst. To this day, even after 30 years, it's the worst, said Cloyd. I believe justice was served. At the time of the crimes, Berkeley Bell was the district attorney and led the lead prosecutor on the Lilac case. All right, back to the story about the Lilacs. Uh, this goes back to kind of the resolution of that story. I believe justice was served. At the time of the crimes, Berkeley Bell was the district attorney and lead prosecutor of the Lively case. He is now a practicing defense attorney in Greenville at the firm McAfee and McAfee. Bell successfully secured sentences of life in prison without the possibility of parole for all six young people involved in the murders. I feel like that justice has been served. They have been adequately punished for what they did, Bell told News Channel 11. The fact that nobody can agree on who pulled the trigger and what everybody's participation in the entire event was, I think it's appropriate they all served the same amount of time. To this day, no consistent account of who fired what shots has ever been revealed. It is a mystery to all but the six who were on the scene. They very much intended to do what they did, and they were very proud of it in a way that they wanted to have a memento of it when they, with them to remind them of what they did, said Bell. He says that each of the six were found and arrested. They had a trophy from the victims, including a small toy kitty taken from Tabitha. Reflecting on the case, the first thing that comes to mind is always Peter, says Bell. He met the child... On the hospital in the hospital soon after the attack, an encounter he will never forget. I walk into the hospital room where Peter was, and his aunt was holding him. He'd never seen me before. He just put his arms out for me to take him and hold him, which was a very emotional moment for me, said Bell. I would have to say that a great deal of motivation for me is making sure the people who have killed his sister and his parents receive justice they deserve. Through this, though the six convicted took a plea deal, a trial was held to settle on their life sentence in prison without parole. Bell says evidence collected by investigators show that there was a satanic motivation for the killings. For example, the bullets fired into the bodies were in the shape of a pentagram, and the bodies were placed in a cross formation. I still believe that it was satanic. I also believe and continue to believe it was some kind of initiation event or ritual. I believe they all participated, took, all took a shot, something to band that group together, said Bell. He also added, a witness told police they heard manic laughter at the time of the gunshots were being fired. Bell believed the fates of the Lylids were sealed once Vidar approached the six to share about his own religion a topic that could have fueled rage in the troubled youth. That was a mistake, said Bell. When he approached them, I think they targeted him. Bell says one thing that still shocks him 25 years later is the reaction of the six convicted killers behind bars. No remorse. They have yet to express any genuine remorse, unless it's in the context of blaming someone else, said Bell. None have been successful in appealing their conviction and life sentence. After working seven days a week for nearly over a year on the Lilac case, 
Bell says he finds peace in knowing they brought the family as much justice as they could. This case, it was just totally random. It landed here and became our responsibility to seek justice against people from another state and for people from another community. We tried our very best to do that. We go over to investigationdiscovery.com um, where they have an article, Missing and Murdered, Can You Help Police Solve Four Mysterious Deaths in the Small Kentucky Town? What is going on in Bardstown? Now, one of these uh, stories here at the beginning with the ambushed police officer, that's the one I remember because my brother-in-laws were actually on a ride-along with another state trooper at the time, one that they knew, obviously. And whenever they came up on this thing, because it was like an all-units kind of situation, um, it was very tense. They said they were told, it went from like jovial, like, yeah, we caught that drunk person because they didn't put their blinker on and they swerved, you know, just kind of normal day-to-day stuff. They said the atmosphere got really heavy when they all were called out to that location on the Bluegrass Parkway where that officer died. Um, it went from a, like, yeah, you can get out and observe, to, like, a don't get out of the car. Uh, don't say anything. It's kind of, we'll drop you off at your cars whenever we can. Like, this is top priority, you know. This whole article was written in 2021 by Beth Braden. Officer Jason Ellis. Bardstown Police Department Officer Jason Ellis was headed home to Bloomfield around 2 a.m. after his shift on May 25, 2013. He exited the Bluegrass Parkway at exit 34 and found the ramp blocked with trees. He stopped his police cruiser to clear the road and was gunned down by several shots from a 12-gauge shotgun. By the time another passerby got to him and used his radio for help, Ellis was dead. The investigation revealed that the shooter had been hiding on the hill above the ramp. I just remember that death shocked this community. Um, I know whenever they did the tribute to Officer Jason Ellis, uh, it was like both sides of Dixie Highway were blocked off and... Like, people were lined up along the road to show their love and support for Officer Ellis um, down both sides of Dixie as the police procession, uh, you know, did their thing going to the funeral or honoring him. It was just like thousands, maybe hundreds <laughs> of police cars. I don't know. But to me, back then, it was a lot of police cars. <laughs> Next up, there's Kathy and Samantha Netherland. All right. Less than a year after Ellis's murder, there was a gruesome discovery at a home on Springfield Ro Road in Bardstown, Kentucky. Kathy Netherland, a special education teacher, and her 16-year-old daughter, Samantha, were found murdered in their home on April 21, 2014. Kathy had been shot multiple times. Samantha had been beaten. Both women had their throats cut out. 
Police had said a black Chevy Impala was seen near the home around the time of the murder and believed that vehicle may have some connection to the case. At the end of our episode, I will cover Crystal Rogers and also her dad, uh, Tommy Ballard. All right, this is from WIMT.com. It's a woman who lost her life. Pike County murder hits movie screens by Buddy Forbes. This was written in 2021. Pikeville, Kentucky. The Riverville 10 Cinema reopened its doors Wednesday for the first time in more than one year, resurrecting the screens with, among other options, a movie about a local murder. On June 8, 1989, Susan Daniel Smith was killed in the Pikeville area. Smith, a mother of two from Freeburn, had been working with the FBI as an informant with an agent named Mark Putnam. The partnership, according to reports, soon became an affair, an affair that would eventually ended when Putnam strangled Smith. As a part of our culture now, you know, how many FBI killers do we know? asked Riverfield 10 manager Kathy Harris. The case, which caught the attention of local and national news outlets, was the first reported instance of an FBI agent committing homicide. Books and television programs were created using the story, and that shock continues to cause ripples in different forms of the media today. Harris said she remembers the events unfolding, and her husband and a former police Kentucky State Police Post dispatcher shared some of his experiences with her. He told me that the day that it happened, and he didn't know this at the time, but afterwards he knew. The day it happened, Mark Putnam actually came to Post 9 with the woman in the trunk of his car dead, Harris said. She said she was also questioned, having been working at the former movie theater in town, which she said Putnam used as an alibi. I guess he told them that when that happened, he was at the movies. But he wasn't at the movies, obviously, she said. But now he can be found at the movies or in one. Film crews were in Harlan County in 2016, recording a movie called Above Suspicion. That film was finally released during the pandemic, and now, as movie theaters reopen, the Riverfield 10 is showing the movie on the big screen. Starring actress Amelia Clark. I love Game of Thrones, you know. And now to, you know, see her in a movie about my hometown, even though it was a dark part of our town's history, said local man and Riverfield 10 employee, Jonathan Collins. Locals believe keeping the story alive is important, but some are suspicious of how the story will come across through the Hollywood gaze. It's a woman who lost her life, you know. And rumors aside about anything you know, you should always treat people with dignity, said Collins, and people in this area deserve dignity, and definitely the dead deserve dignity. But still, most people at the theater Wednesday said they were committing to giving, giving the film a shot. ABC 13 WBKO News has an article, Murder Mansion Tour Tells About Bowling Green's Dark History by Isaac Calvert. Bowling Green, Kentucky, it was late summer night of 1948 when Dr. Charles Martin and his wife, Martha, were murdered in their luxurious mansion. Unseen Bowling Green's historic walking tours take tours behind the scenes of some of the Vet City's infamous bits of history. 
Unseen Bowling Green has hosted many walking tours this spooky season, but the walking tour behind the most infamous murder mansion leaves many people to wonder about what exactly happened the night in the Martin household. Debbie Eaton helps tell the story of what happened that fateful night from the perspective of the victim's daughter-in-law, Ruth Ann McKinney. Every year, we try to bring a little bit of Bowling Green's history, said Eaton. Every time, people tell me, well, I knew that person, or I knew that person's son, and they were amazed at the history that is involved. The tour tells the history of the home, the family, the mysteries behind the murders that occurred on that fateful night. Eaton says that the owners of the house now say it is a lovely home, but others, not so much. They tell us that the house is a very happy place, said Eaton. They have not had any mysterious happenings, but a lot of their guests feel a little uncomfortable about the home and what happened in it. Some tourists say they would take the tour again if given the chance due to the history of the murders and because how they felt like they were involved in the story themselves. The mansion was beautiful. We actually got to go up on the grounds and have a look at it. It was like we were involved in the story, said Renee Wedding, who has taken the murder mansion walking tour before. It is interesting because I would never would have thought something like that would happen here. But I do know we have had some crazy things over the years. It does not really surprise me, I guess, said Penny Wheeler, a first-time Murder Mansion tourist. The tours have been so popular this Halloween season that tickets have sold out for weeks. All right, we go to the lineup.com where they have an article, Bitter Blood Murders, A Brutal Story of Family, Madness, and Death, by Kelsey Christine McConnell. The disintegration of one marriage ended in unspeakable tragedy. In the mid-1980s, three prominent families were swept up in a wave of violence known as the Bitter Blood Murders. Pride, paranoia, obsession, and savage revenge brought, the, brought about the most horrific deaths of nine people in Kentucky and North Carolina. But what connected these three doomed families? Marriage. The first deaths occurred in the summer of 1984. The bodies of 60-year-old Dolores Lynch and her daughter, 39-year-old Janie, were discovered in Prospect, Kentucky on July 24th. Multiple gunshot wounds. It seems as if the murders were a result of a professional killer. When Tom Lynch, the son of Dolores and brother of Janie, learned the tragic news of his family's slaughter, he was with his two young sons. Tom rarely got to see his children. The result of an acrimonious split from his former wife, Susie, Newson Lynch. Susie was combative. She had never gotten along with Tom's mother. In fact, Susie and Dolores had fought on Susie and Tom's wedding day. So when in the early summer of 1985, nearly a year after the deaths of Dolores and Janie, members of Susie's own family met similarly brutal ends. It arose suspicion to the police. On May 19, 1985, authorities discovered the bodies of 65-year-old Robert W. Newsom, 66-year-old er, Florence Sharp Newsom, and 84-year-old Hattie Newsom at Hattie Newsom's home. The father, mother, and grandmother of Susie Newsom Lynch were murdered in a similar fashion to the Lynch family victims. However, these deaths bore the markings of far greater violence. While police suspected that Susie had a hand in the deaths, their eyes were on another subject, Fritz Klenner. 
Fritz had a close connection to the Newsoms. He was Susie's first cousin, the son of Florence's daughter, Annie Hall Sharp Klenner. Susie was seven years older than Fritz. Growing up, the two were not particularly close. This changed in later years. As adults, Susie and Fritz became intimate. Like Susie, Fritz Klenner was a troubled individual. Spurred by the demands of an overbearing father and an inflated sense of self-importance, he was also a pathological liar. He set up a fraudulent medical practice, treating patients without any degree or license. He wove tales of valiantly saving his father's life, fighting as a Green Beret during the Vietnam War, and working undercover for the CIA. Every word was a lie. It was through these lies that Fritz embarked on a mission of violence that touched all three families. Fritz enlisted the help of a young, impressionable neighbor named Ian Perkins. He told Ian that he needed aid in the CIA mission to wipe out drug traffickers, and if Ian performed well enough, he might be considered for a more serious role in government intelligence. On the night of the grisly Newsom murders, Ian drove Fritz Klenner to Hattie Newsom's home and served as the getaway driver, still under the assumption that he was part of a CIA mission. Ian quickly folded under police pressure, and the truth was soon laid out before him. Weighed upon by guilt, he agreed to wear a wire and try to capture a confession from Fritz. On June 3rd, Ian's Perkins climbed into Fritz Klenner's car and recorded a statement vaguely implicating the man's guilt. It was the closest anyone would ever get to a full-blooded confession in the Better Blood murders. Mere hours later, the violence came to a fiery end. Police descended on Fritz's Greensboro apartment with the intent of arresting him, but Fritz fired back at police, then climbed into his SUV and fled the scene, with Susie in the passenger seat and Susie's two sons in the back. A pursuit commenced. Fritz was both wild and unafraid. He opened fire upon the police officers with an Uzi. After escaping a police barricade, he drove further down the road and then came to a stop. The SUV burst into flames. The car was wired with explosives. Susie died in the explosion. Ten-year-old John and nine-year-old Jim Lynch were also dead, though forensic examiners later learned that the boys had been poisoned with cyanide and shot in their heads prior to the detonation. Fritz initially survived the attack, only to die on the road from internal hemorrhaging. What caused such a senseless wave of death? Was Fritz the man who pulled the trigger in the family slayings, or did someone else carry out the deed? And just how much did Susie know? The terrifying and scandalous truth is revealed in Jerry Bledsoe's best-selling true crime novel, Bitter Blood. Bledsoe's book on the Bitter Blood murders brilliantly details the shocking twists and turns that claimed the lives of nine people including Susie Newsom Lynch, Fritz Klenner, and Susie's two children. A number one New York Times bestseller, when it was first published, Bitter, Bloods, or Bitter Blood is an engrossing Southern Gothic, sure to delight fans of the true crime genre, that vividly recreates one of the most shocking crimes in recent history. All right, we go over to CNN, where they have an article by Michael Martinez and Kevin Conlon. Three men, including two ex-cops, sharp, charged in the 1994 slayings of Kentucky prostitutes. All right, this was in 2013. For 19 years, the cold case of two slain prosecutors.
prostitutes weighed heavily on the small military town of Oak Grove, Kentucky, especially after the brothers Madame publicly accused two allegedly corrupt police officers of the killings. Because the Madame's accusation was boldly made during a city council meeting three years after the deaths, everyone in town has long known the suspicions, but local police and the Christian County Sheriff's Office were unable to crack the case. Now, a seven-year investigation by the Kentucky State Police has resulted in charges against the two police officers, both of whom have since left the force, and a third man. One of the former officers was a detective who appeared at the crime scene with other officers to investigate the killers, or the killings. One former officer who was on the scene. For now, Oak Grove, adjacent to U.S. Army's Fort Campbell, is feeling relief from the tantalizing mystery, but the town's mayor said Wednesday he suspects the case could be even bigger. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think there are more arrests coming, said Dan Potter, who wasn't mayor when the killings occurred in 94. Wouldn't the other police officers know? One of the former officers, Leslie Duncan, 50, already is serving a three-year prison sentence after pleading guilty in September to tampering with physical evidence in the case, state police said. Duncan of Central Central City, Kentucky, was charged this month with two counts of complicity to murder, police said. Former officer Edward Carter, 43, of Somerset, Kentucky, was charged with two counts of murder and is being held by the Warren County, Ohio Sheriff's Office, pending his extradition to Kentucky. And Kentucky State Trooper Stuart Reck said, It was not immediately clear if Carter has been has retained an attorney. A third man who was never a police officer, Frank Black Jr., 39, of Gadsden, Alabama, also was charged with two counts of murder and is being held by the Alabama authorities pending extradition to Kentucky. Black's father, Frank Sr., told CNN that his son, who is living nearby, Clarksville, Tennessee, at the time of the killings, is innocent and says he isn't sure how his son came to be associated with Duncan and Clark, if they were at all. Carter and Black are being held in lieu of $1 million bail. All right, back to that case. Duncan's attorney, Stephanie Ritchie, said his client maintains his innocence and denies being involved in the murders or intentionally doing anything to cover up or conceal the identities of the murderer or murderers. Mr. Duncan pled guilty in September of this year as a result of his mishandling of police investigation immediately following the murders in 94, Ritchie said. He expressed remorse and regret regret to the victim's families and to the court for his inadequacies as a young, inexperienced detective, with too much responsibility on his shoulders, Richie said. The charge against all three men stem from the 1994 killings of Candace Belt, 22, and Gloria Ross, 18, who worked as prostitutes at the New Life Massage Parlor, police said. Needless to say, since it's an open and active investigation, we can't get too much into the details, Rex said this week. The Kentucky State Police got the investigation back in 2006. Our investigators, once we get an investigation from another agency, we start from square one and go through all the information available with a fine-tooth comb. A fellow officer's suspicions. Former officer Bob Combs, 
who was first to arrive at the scene of the killings, recalled his suspicions of Carter and Duncan at the time. I suspected they may have been involved, but didn't have any evidence, said Combs, who joined the force only a year before. Belt, a mother of two, was still alive when he arrived. Combs said, but she died on the way to the hospital. Once Duncan got there, he was the detective, so it became his scene, he said. In an interview this week with CNN, Combs claimed Duncan disturbed crime scene evidence. Duncan ran in there and messed up the scene. The phone was off the hook when I arrived, and then after Duncan was in there, the phone was back on the receiver, Combs said. No one had ever asked me, the first officer on the scene, anything about this case. No one ever asked me anything until the state police took over, years after it happened. Combs, who went on to be a city councilman, served until last year, said he and Duncan had been friendly back then. He could be a nice guy, but he could have a real temper, Combs said. Right? Ex-Madame, they knew we had stuff on them. Three years after the killings, then-councilwoman Patty Ballou announced that she, too, was a former prostitute at the massage parlor. She and other prostitutes gave police sexual favors at a discount or at no cost, she alleged. If they were police officers, that's what we had to do when, whether we wanted to or not, which we didn't like, Ballou told CNN in 97. This week, Combs called the city council meeting in 1997 when Tammy Papler, the massage parlor's madame, dramatically accused the police officers of extortion and murder. Papler couldn't be reached by CNN for comment this week, but in a 1997 interview, Papler alleged to police, they weren't getting any more money from us, and they knew we had stuff on them. The only way to keep us quiet was to kill the girls and put us in jail. Papler made further accusations in the CNN article that year, when she had already quit being a madame. I did what they told me to do, she said. If they needed new police lights, I bought new police lights. If they needed birthday money, I gave them birthday money. If they needed money for a trailer to be moved, basically anything they told me they needed, I gave them money for it. Belt and Ross were shot in the head, and their throats were slashed, Papler said. It was devastating to us, she said in 97. They both had babies. One was breastfeeding her baby. It was just a few weeks old. Also in 97, the Christian County Sheriff's Department said crime scene evidence was botched by police, and then Sheriff Thomas Skillian said Carter was a prime suspect. He had been at the scene 30 minutes before the slayings, according to authorities. There were other informations that we had leads that leads us to believe Carter would be a good suspect, Skillian said. Then Mayor Bobby Mace said the killings cast a pall over the small town. There's a cloud hanging over us right now, and there's no rain, he said. Let's get it to either rain or let the wind blow the cloud out. Let's get moving forward to the future. In 98, a federal court in Kentucky ruled in favor of Ross's husband and her two children in their lawsuit against Tammy and Ronnie Papler, who owned the massage parlor business, court paper show. The court issued a default judgment against the Paplers for failing to respond to or defend against the Ross family's lawsuit, which accused Paplers of negligence in Ross's death. Right? The U.S. District Court, however, dismissed the Ross's negligent claims against 
Louise Seawright, the owner of the building, when the massage parlor was located. Alright, we go over to Historical Crime Detective, where they have an article on the Torture House, 1924, Louisville, Kentucky. Alright, originally published Torture House by Detective Lieutenant William Olichgen, as told to the Frederick Lord, True Detective Mysteries, February 1930. Recently, while in my office in Louisville, I was pondering on the dullness of life in particular, of a detective's life, when a question was put to me by a friend who dropped in for a chat. Lieutenant, do you remember the Gates-Heaton case here in Louisville? Do I remember the Gates-Heaton case? He replied. I don't suppose anyone who had anything to do with it will ever forget it. My friend's query brought back the memory of that strange case, one of the weirdest I've ever known in my many years of police work. And after a few remarks had passed, I consented to tell him the story. It was about 6.30 p.m. on a Saturday night six years ago. March 8, 1924 was the date. If I remember rightly, that we received a call from Louisville Police Department headquarters. A man has been shot, the voice over the telephone shouted. You'll find him at 6, 637 South 34th Street. Accompanied by several of my men, I reached the scene in record time. We found the body on the second floor in the bedroom. It was lying near a mattress, a circumstance odd in itself because the mattress was lying on the floor. Surrounding the mattress were four steel staples driven into the floor. No one missed the picture it created, together with a number of surgical instruments that were also in the room. Not much more than a glance showed us that the man was dead. There was a gaping hole in his neck, another near his heart. Several persons were in the room, and as is usually the case, they were incoherently babbling words about the killer. He had raced from the house, they said, where he had made sure, on a doctor's word in fact, that his victim was dead. On the killer's wrists were handcuffs. His body was trembling, his face pallid. There is not much use in telling all the minor details. Here are the main facts as we ascertain them by rapid questioning. The dead man was Richard Heaton, 33 years old, partner in a prosperous broker brokerage concern and well-known and reputable citizen of Louisville. His home was on South First Street, where he lived with his charming and beautiful wife, his two children, a boy and a girl, both in elementary grades in public school. His wife, who was related to a very wealthy Louisville man, was in the room, and so was a doctor, H.E. Schoonover, who happened to be in the neighborhood at the time of the shooting. This house was in a good residential section of Louisville. Mrs. Heaton, who retained her composure with admiral, admirable fortitude, told us that William Gates, her husband's lifelong friend, had done the shooting. I at once obtained a description of Gates and went across the street to use the telephone. I called headquarters and gave the desk sergeant what information I had. A hunt for Gates was immediately instituted. Returning to the house, I found that a crowd had gathered about and that my men were having a difficulty in preventing the curious from entering. I went back upstairs. Miss Heaton was still kneeling beside her husband's body. She said something that made me pinch myself to make sure I was not dreaming. 
She said her husband had held Gates a prisoner for two nights and two days. He was chained to the floor in this room, she told us. At once, the significance of the mattress on the door and the staples dawned on me. Never will I forget that room and its contents. I called Dr. Schoonover, and together we examined the surgical instruments. The doctor commented on their quality and told me whoever had selected them must have had more than an ordinary layman's knowledge of such things. We found a surgeon's knife, several pairs of forceps, a hemostat, around a dozen suture ligatures, two or three instrument trays, a surgeon's apron, rubber sheets and rubber gloves. There was a quality of quantity of bandages, medical gauze, and absorbent cotton, disinfectant, and a large can of chloroform, a complete outfit for performing an operation. The man who had planned the operation apparently had also planned to remove a body in case his victim died. He had provided three large watertight boxes, a large butcher knife, and a very large hatchet. We also found a quantity of sulfuric acid, in all, it was about as gruesome a sight as anyone could care to see. By that time, the fingerprint men had arrived. I noticed imprints on most of the instruments, and I set the men to work. The rest of my men had been looking over the house and a small garage in the rear. They had found several guns, both revolvers and automatics, and a lot of ammunition. I was anxious to talk to Miss Heaton to direct the search for the man who had done the shooting. So leaving Lieutenant Jim Cundiff in charge, I returned to headquarters accompanied by Mrs. Heaton. I had seen enough to realize this was going to be a most extraordinary case. When we arrived at the office, Captain E.A. Larkin, the chief of detectives was there. He started asking questions. I told him what I had seen and the little I knew. Then we called Mrs. Heaton into the office. She was very pale and considering what she had been through, seemed to have a pretty good hold on herself. It was a little hard for her to start, but after a bit, she began to talk. She told us that she had eloped with Heaton some eight years before, when she was only 15 years old. They seemed to have lived a happy and normal life until the spring of two. Suddenly, and without warning, she told us her husband began to accuse her of being intimate with Gates whom they had both known since childhood. At times, Miss Heaton said, his manner and the things he said almost became unbearable. Of course, she denied this accusation, but Heaton, without any cause or reason, continued to berate her. The state of affairs continued for four years, and in fact, up until the day before the shooting. About four weeks before, Heaton had brought a woman detective to his house a Miss Jenny Moore of Chicago. Her deputies were to accompany Miss Heaton wherever she left the house to answer all telephone calls and to prevent Miss Heaton from using the telephone herself. While I am subject of Mrs. Moore, while I'm on the subject of Mrs. Moore, um, I might add that her sworn statement voluntarily given to us a few days later verified everything Miss Heaton told us that night. Mrs. Heaton was growing paler I asked her if she did not want to rest a few minutes. She shook her head, asked if she might have a glass of water, and continued her story. On Thursday, her husband rented the house on 34th Street for the express purpose of taking Gates there and punishing him. I could see that it had taken a lot of effort on her part to make that admission. 
I was powerless to prevent my husband from carrying out his plan, Miss Heaton said. You see, I was practically held a prisoner in my own home. Friday, the day before the shooting, her husband came home. He told his wife that he still had gates, but he laughed that when he told me about it, and it was frightening more than ever. Saturday afternoon, Mrs. Heaton, not having heard from her husband since the day before and being almost frantic with worry, finally slipped away from Mrs. Moore, called a cab, and drove to the house where Gates was being held captive. Her husband met her at the door, told her to come in, and cautioned his wife to be quiet. He looked terrible, Miss Heaton said. He seemed to be under a terrible strain and plainly showed the lack of two nights sleep. I felt sorry for him and told him so. He only laughed. I asked him if he had Bill Gates upstairs, and he said, yes, I am giving him the scare of his life. I bet he won't bother e either of us ever again. Mrs. Heaton begged her husband to let his prisoner go and give up on his mad plan. Heaton absolutely refused to listen. They talked a few minutes, and then Heaton said he had to go back upstairs. I have to watch Bill consistently for fear he might get away, he told his wife. I guess he had been gone about two or three minutes when suddenly I heard a voice say, Don't shoot! It was hardly more than a whisper. And then I heard two shots, fired in rapid succession. As I started up the stairway, Bill Gates came running down. He called and asked who was there, and I replied, Mary Lee. He didn't stop. As he passed me, he said, I have shot Dick, and I'm going for a doctor. Mrs. Heaton was nervously twisting her purse. Her voice was hardly above a whisper, and I was afraid she was going to faint. I fetched her another glass of water, and in a moment she seemed to be all right. I continued on upstairs, she said, and found my husband in the rear bedroom, lying near the mattress, just as you first saw him. He was breathing and trying to say something. I couldn't understand what he was trying to say. In a few minutes, some man came in and told me he was a doctor. He looked at Dick. I asked him if he was going to die, and he said he didn't think so. Just then, Bill came from downstairs, asked the doctor for the same question. Mrs. Heaton said she made arrangements with the doctor to call her family physician and have her husband taken to the hospital. Then another man came in. He looked at Dick and said he was dead. Just then I heard Bill again call from downstairs, and the man called back and told him my husband was dead. I haven't seen or heard from Bill since. I knelt down and kissed Dick. I didn't know what to do, so I just sat there by his side. I know police officers are supposed to be hard-hearted and all sort of thing, but I must admit I felt Never felt so sorry for anyone as I did for this woman. I hated to do it, and I know the captain felt the same way, but we had to question her. There were several things that were not clear, and of course her story had to be checked. We had to let her story let we had to let her tell her story without interruption, going about it as gentle as possible, and after about forty five minutes of cross examination, we were both convinced that she had told us all she knew and she had told us the truth. I told Mrs. Heaton she could go and had one of my men take her home in a cab. Then we had some good news. Heaton's business partner was in the outer office and wanted to see the chief. He was brought in at once. Without doubt, he would throw new light on the case. 
he told us that his name was William A. Fisher, and he was a member of the firm of Heaton and Fisher, merchandise brokers of Louisville. He had heard about the murder and wanted to tell us all he knew about the affair. According to Fisher, Heaton, for some time past, had been acting queerly. He told his partner that several men were trying to break up his home. For the last year, he had neglected businesses, remained away from the office for long periods of time, and failed to let his partner know where, where he was and how long he intended staying. Fisher had tried every possible way to get Heaton to attend to the business, but Heaton had refused to listen to him. Early in February, he had told Fisher, There's only one man left, and as soon as I have attended to him, all my troubles will be over, and I will return to the office. Fisher knew about the house Heaton had rented in the West End. Heaton told him about it and said he was going to take the man there and scare him to death. I wanted to impress on his mind that he is never to cross my path again, Heaton had told his partner. Fisher had be begged him to give up any such plan. I told him that it was dangerous and that he was only going to get himself in trouble. He refused to listen and told me if I ever breathed a word to anyone about his plans, I would have to answer to him. We were interrupted. Officers had, officers had brought in to headquarters a man who they believed answered Gates' description. He was in the outer office. I rushed out. It wasn't Gates. The poor fellow was scared half to death. He had red hair. Gates had brown hair. I gave those patrolmen several different brands of calm down or of call down and returned to the chief's office. Fisher resumed his story. He said that on Friday, Hyde Conrad brought him a note from Heaton requesting Fisher to come to 34th Street address that afternoon. I interrupted Fisher long enough to find out where Conrad lived and learned that he was an organist in one of the t downtown theaters. I sent a couple of men out to pick up Conrad and bring him to police headquarters. I went down Friday afternoon, hoping to bring Dick to his senses. He looked terrible. I could see he was very nervous, laboring under a strain. He told me he had no sleep for three days and asked me to stay there in the house while he went home and got some sleep. This I refused to do. He then asked me if I would stay while he went home and saw his wife. He promised he would only be gone about half an hour. He begged so hard that I finally agreed. He took me upstairs. In the back room, lying on a mattress, his arms and legs tied to the floor, a cover over his face was a man. Dick told me that he had put the cover over the man's face because his prisoner was ashamed of what he had done and did not want his identity known. He assured me the man was securely tied and could not get loose, and then he left. After he had gone, I noticed that the man was moving, as if he were trying to ease his evidently aching muscles. I asked him if there was anything I could do for him. He didn't answer, so I just sat there. In about 30 minutes, I heard Dick come in and went downstairs. I again begged him to let the man go. I told him he was sure to get into trouble. He laughed at my fears and assured me once again that I am only giving him a good scare and am not going to harm him in the least. While I was in the room upstairs, I heard Dick, or I saw hat and coat that I thought I recognized. I asked Dick if the male man wasn't Bill Gates, and he said it might be, and laughed. Then I pleaded with him, harder than ever. 
I would have done anything to keep Dick out of trouble. He wouldn't listen. He asked me to come back that night, and I told him I might, and left. As you see, the story so far as Fisher was telling it was checking with the statement Mrs. Heaton had made. I don't know whether I mentioned it or not, but both these statements were made under oath. All right, it talks about Gates kidnapping and about um, him sizing up all the instruments, the sharp hatchet, the boxes and rubber sheets, how he was told to get down and all that kind of stuff. Bill Gates was arraigned in court Monday morning, May 12th, 1924, and was released on bail. He was subsequently dismissed, the police court judge ruling that he had killed Heaton in self-defense. A coroner's jury also absolved him from all blame. Pretty much about the torture house. Pretty cool, I've never heard of that one. There's a lot more information on it, but it was basically every single witness describing the same exact things that the first two witnesses described. So went ahead and skipped forward a little bit. <laughs> All right, so we get to the final story or stories of this episode. And we go over to Wikipedia where they talk about this disappearance of Crystal Rogers. Again, this happened in the town that I work in, which is Bardstown, Kentucky. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much a local legend there. So, Crystal Maria Rogers disappeared, disappeared from her home in Bardstown, Kentucky, United States on July 3rd, 2015. Her boyfriend at the time said she disappeared from their home overnight. Her car was found on a nearby highway two days later. Rogers' family believes the boyfriend was involved in foul play. He was considered a suspect after he broke off an interview. Her family also believes the case is connected to the unsolved 2016 shooting death of Rogers' father while hunting. In 2023, two area men, including her former boyfriend, were indicted on charges connected to the case. At the time of her disappearance, the 35-year-old mother was a, of five was living with her boyfriend, Brooks Hook, H-O-U-C-K, their two-year-old son, and her other children. Hook, or Hauk, was the last person known to have seen her, stating... She was on her phone playing games at their home when he went to bed. She was gone the next morning when he awoke, and her car was not in the driveway. Her family began to worry after multiple attempts to contact her that day failed. Two days later, on July 5th, Crystal's 2007 Chevrolet Impala was found parked with a flat tire by mile marker 14 on the Bluegrass Parkway. The keys were still in the ignition, and her purse and cell phone were also found inside. She was officially reported missing by her mother, Sherry Ballard, the same day. The Investigation and Suspects The Ballard family was very vocal about their suspicion of Brooks Hauk having some sort of involvement in Roger's disappearance early on in the case. In an interview, Crystal's sister said Brooks has not offered once to search or help or do anything for the family. On July 8th, Hauk was brought in by the Nelson County Sheriff's Office for questioning. Nick Hauk, Brooks's brother, 
and a Bardstown police officer called mid-interview and told him not to speak with police. The next day, Nick was called to testify in front of a grand jury, which led police to suspect he also had involvement in the disappearance. It is at this time that Nick stopped cooperating with the sheriff's office. However, he agreed to a polygraph test after being interviewed by Kentucky State Police. Nick finally took a polygraph test in July of 2020 after being contacted by the FBI. Or it just says polygraph on July 20 after being contacted by the FBI. The examiner expressed grave concerns about the results with Bardstown Police Chief McCubbin. On October 16, 2015, Nick was fired from the Bardstown Police Department and Brooks was officially named a suspect in the case. A white Buick became an important piece of evidence when a private investigator found that one was parked at the Hauk farm the night of Roger's disappearance. The Hauk brothers' grandmother, Anna Whitesides, owned a white Buick but sold it several weeks after Rogers went missing. Authorities issued a subpoena for the 82-year-old to testify in front of a grand jury. The subpoena stated that the car may have been used in the disposal of a body, cleaned and sold in an attempt to prevent evidence from being discovered. Whitesides refused to testify in front of a grand jury. Attorney Jason Floyd said her statement to the police and the car buyer's information was enough. A judge later ruled to keep all future proceedings involving Whitesides confidential. In August 2016, police searched the residence of Whitesides and Nick Houck for DNA. Despite multiple search efforts and a $100,000 reward being offered for any information, Rogers remains missing. Ramon Pinheiroa, the new Nelson County Sheriff appointed in 2019, has stated his commitment to solving the case. In an interview, Pinheiroa said the agency has a good idea of what happened to Rogers and his mission to find enough facts and evidence to make an arrest. The murder of Tommy Ballard. On the morning of November 19, 2016, 16 months after Rogers' disappearance, her 54-year-old father, Tommy Ballard, was shot to death. He had been hunting on his private property with his 12-year-old grandson, Rogers' eldest son. He had been shot once in the chest. Police have cleared the grandson of foul play and have also ruled out suicide as Tommy's gun was never fired. FBI in Bardstown the FBI has conducted two searches in Bardstown. The first search occurred in August of 2020 and the second in August of 2021. The second search took place in the Woodlawn Springs subdivision, where Brooks Houck Construction Company built several houses shortly after the disappearance of Crystal Rogers. The FBI had not disclosed any details of their findings at this location. But on August 27, 2021, they did announce that they have an item of interest that had been removed from the concrete at one of the houses. During the most recent search, the FBI also stated that they know there are people in Bardstown who have information on the case, and added that it was time for those people to come forward. 2023 Indictments In September of 2023, a Nelson County grand jury indicted a local man, Joseph Lawson, 32, 
on charges of conspiracy to commit murder and complicity in tampering with physical evidence. The indictment did not identify any victim, but the dates given for the murder correspond to Roger's disappearance. Her relatives confirmed they had been notified by the indi- about the indictment prior to it being made public. On October 5, 2023, her former boyfriend, Brooks Houck, was arraigned in Nelson County Circuit Court on a charge of murder. Prosecutor Shane Young asked for a $10 million bond. The prosecutor also revealed investigators have recovered a gun sold by Houck's brother under an assumed name that could be a match for the murder weapon in the killing of Roger's father, Tommy Ballard. All right, so that pretty much sums up uh, this story, Um, but it's crazy that these things happened, you know, here, and it really did shake the town of Bardstown, Um, you know, from the police officer, Ellis, that lost his life right there at Bardstown off of uh, the Bluegrass Parkway uh, to that mother-daughter that got murdered and then this one as the most recent urban legend in the area i remember working in shepherdsville a town over and you know it was like everybody was talking about this when it happened you know like no one knows what happened to crystal rogers you know and then a year later her dad was shot and they were like this is connected so pretty cool um i know i said in here in 2023, which is just September and October, we've had advancements in this case, and it's only November. So we'll see where this one turns out as far as guilty convictions and stuff like that. But it's been a long time coming. 2015 to being a cold case to now, it's pretty cool that they're actually getting some movement and some traction on uh, something that has puzzled the entire town and pretty much the entire area around it so that is a pretty cool story i hope justice is served and i hope it brings some peace to the families all right so i could go into many articles all the way from 2015 to show you the anxiety of not knowing what happened to crystal rogers to each development in the case but this wikipedia article pretty much summed up what these articles say so with that being said i didn't cover uh the recent murders or i know there's murders in louisville (laughs) i don't want to say they happen all the time but i didn't cover any of those these are more the historic ones um the ones that have been in pop culture and things like that um i'm sure i could do an extensive series of lists on the individual murders that have taken place in kentucky but I hope I give you gave you a glimpse into Kentuckiana and some of our most famous murders that have happened here. All right, all you true crime fans. I'm more into the spooky, but every now and then I throw in a murder or two. So I hope this uh, satisfied your curiosity about Kentucky murders. And yeah, send me any stories to uh, be featured in future episodes. You can join our Facebook page at P.S. Spooky Shiz. You can also search for Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Um, It's a great way to connect with me and send me stories for future episodes. 
Um, also take part in some of our surveys to see what you want to hear about next. All right. Um, other than that, Spotify uh, for podcasters is the program that I use for putting out my podcast. And I just got to say, like, they have this new feature that lets you comment on an episode. So I want to encourage anybody that has feedback or questions or anything like that, or you can even slip a story or two in there. I won't mind. But feel free to answer the question on there that's like, what did you think of this episode? <laughs> it's a great way to connect with me as well. All right. With that being said, stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>